Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing with Book 1, Chapter 15, Section 6. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 6. It were vain to seek a definition of the soul from philosophers, not one of whom, with the exception of Plato, distinctly maintained its immortality. Others of the school of Socrates, indeed, lean the same way, but still without teaching distinctly a doctrine of which they were not fully persuaded. Plato, however, advanced still further and regarded the soul as an image of God. Others so attach its powers and faculties to the present life that they leave nothing external to the body. Moreover, having already shown from Scripture that the substance of the soul is incorporeal, we must now add that though it is not properly enclosed by space, it, however, occupies the body as a kind of habitation, not only animating all its parts and rendering the organs fit and useful for their actions, but also holding the first place in regulating the conduct. This it does not merely in regard to the offices of a terrestrial life, but also in regard to the service of God. This, though not clearly seen in our corrupt state, Yet the impress of its remains is seen in our very vices. For whence have men such a thirst for glory, but from a sense of shame? And whence this sense of shame, but from a respect for what is honorable? Of this, the first principle and source is a consciousness that they were born to cultivate righteousness, a consciousness akin to religion. But as man was undoubtedly created to meditate on the heavenly life, so it is certain that the knowledge of it was engraven on the soul. And, indeed, man would want the principal use of his understanding if he were unable to discern his felicity, the perfection of which consists in being united to God. Hence, the principal action of the soul is to aspire thither, and, accordingly, the more a man studies to approach to God, the more he proves himself to be endued with reason. Though there is some plausibility in the opinion of those who maintain that man has more than one soul, namely a sentient and a rational, yet as there is no soundness in their arguments, we must reject it, unless we would torment ourselves with things frivolous and useless. They tell us, see chapter 5, section 4, there is a great repugnance between organic movements and the rational part of the soul, as if reason also were not at variance with herself and her counsels sometimes conflicting with each other like hostile armies. But since this disorder results from the deprivation of nature, 
it is erroneous to infer that there are two souls, because the faculties do not accord so harmoniously as they ought. But I leave it to philosophers to discourse more subtly of these faculties. For the edification of the pious, a simple definition will be sufficient. I admit, indeed, that what they ingeniously teach on the subject is true, and not only pleasant, but also useful to be known, nor do I forbid any who are inclined to prosecute the study. First, I admit that there are five senses, which Plato prefers calling organs, by which all objects are brought into a common sensorium, as into a kind of receptacle. Next comes the imagination, or fantasia, which distinguishes between the objects brought into the sensorium. Next, reason, to which the general power of judgment belongs. And, lastly, intellect, which contemplates with fixed and quiet look whatever reason discursively resolves. In like manner, to intellect, fancy, and reason, the three cognitive faculties of the soul correspond three appetitive faculties, these will, whose office is to choose whatever reason and intellect propound, irascibility, which seizes on what is set before it by reason and fancy, and concupiscence, which lays hold of the objects presented by sense and fancy. Though these things are true, or at least plausible, still, as I fear they are more fitted to entangle by their obscurity than to assist us, I think it best to omit them. If any one chooses to distribute the powers of the mind in a different manner, calling one appetive, which, though devoid of reason, yet obeys reason, if directed from a different quarter and another intellectual, as being by itself participant of reason, I have no great objection. Nor am I disposed to quarrel with the view that there are three principles of action, viz., sense, intellect, and appetite. But let us rather adopt a division adapted to all capacities, a thing which certainly is not to be obtained from philosophers. For they, when they would speak most plainly, divide the soul into appetite and intellect, but make both double. To the latter they sometimes give the name of contemplative, as being contented with mere knowledge, and having no active power, which circumstance makes Cicero designated by the name of intellect. At other times they give it the name of practical, because it variously moves the will by the apprehension of good or evil. Under this class is included the art of living well and justly. The former, these appetite, they divide into will and concupiscence, calling it Greek word beta, omicron, epsilon, lambda, eta, sigma, iota, zeta. Whenever the appetite, which they call Greek word omicron, rho, mu, eta, obeys the reason. But when appetite, casting off the yoke of reason, runs to intemperance, they call it, Greek word, pi, alpha, theta, omicron, zeta. Thus they always presuppose in man a reason by which he is able to guide himself aright. Section 7. From this method of teaching we are forced somewhat to dissent. For philosophers, being unacquainted with the corruption of nature, which is the punishment of revolt, erroneously confound two states of man which are very different from each other. Let us therefore hold, for the purpose of the present work, that the soul consists of two parts, the intellect and the will. Book 2, Chapter 2, Section 2, and 12. The office of the intellect being to distinguish between objects according as they seem deserving of being approved or disapproved,
and the office of the will to choose and follow what the intellect declares to be good, to reject and shun what it declares to be bad. We dwell not on the subtlety of Aristotle, that the mind has no motion of itself, but that the moving power is choice, which he also terms the appetitive intellect. Not to lose ourselves in superfluous questions, let it be enough to know that the intellect is to us, as it were, the guide and ruler of the soul, that the will always follows its beck and waits for its decision in matters of desire, for which Aristotle truly taught that in the appetite there is a pursuit and rejection corresponding in some degree to affirmation and negation in the intellect. Moreover, it will be seen in another place, Book 2, Chapter 2, Section 12 through 26, how surely the intellect governs the will. Here we only wish to observe that the soul does not possess any faculty which may not be duly referred to one or other of these members, and in this way we comprehend sense under intellect. Others distinguish thus. They say that sense inclines to pleasure, in the same way as the intellect to good, that hence the appetite of sense becomes concupiscence and lust, while the affection of the intellect becomes will. For the term appetite, which they prefer, I use that of will as being more common. Section 8. Therefore God has provided the soul of man with intellect, by which he might discern good from evil, just from unjust, and might know what to follow or to shun, reason going before with her lamp whence philosophers, in reference to her directing power, have called her Greek words Tau, Omicron, Eta, Lambda, Epsilon, Nu, Omicron, Nu, Iota, Xi, Omicron, Nu. To this he has joined will, to which choice belongs. Man excelled in these noble endowments in his primitive condition, when reason, intelligence, prudence, and judgment not only sufficed for the government of his earthly life, but also enabled him to rise up to God and eternal happiness. Thereafter choice was added to direct the appetites and temper all the organic motions, the will being thus perfectly submissive to the authority of reason. In this upright state, man possessed freedom of will by which, if he chose, he was able to obtain eternal life. It were here unseasonable to introduce the question concerning the secret predestination of God, because we are not considering what might or might not happen, but what the nature of man truly was. Adam, therefore, might have stood if he chose, since it was only by his own will that he fell. But it was because his will was pliable in either direction, and he had not received constancy to persevere that he so easily fell. Still he had a free choice of good and evil. And not only so, but in the mind and will there was the highest rectitude, and all the organic parts were duly framed to obedience, until man corrupted its good properties and destroyed himself. Hence the great darkness of philosophers who have looked for a complete building in a ruin and fit arrangement in disorder. The principle they set out with was that man could not be a rational animal unless he had a free choice of good and evil. They also imagined that the distinction between virtue and vice was destroyed if man did not of his own counsel arrange his life. So far well, had there been no change in man. This being unknown to them, it is not surprising that they throw everything into confusion. But those who, while they profess to be the disciples of Christ, still seek for free will in man, 
notwithstanding of his being lost and drowned in spiritual destruction, labor under manifold delusion, making a heterogeneous mixture of inspired doctrine and philosophical opinions, and so erring as to both. But it will be better to leave these things to their own place. See Book 2, Chapter 2. At present, it is necessary only to remember that man at his first creation was very different from all his posterity, who, deriving their origin from him after he was corrupted, received a hereditary taint. At first, every part of the soul was formed to rectitude. There was soundness of mind and freedom of will to choose the good. If anyone objects that it was placed, as it were, in a slippery position, because its power was weak, I answer that the degree conferred was sufficient to take away every excuse. For surely the deity could not be tied down to this condition, to make man such that he either could not or would not sin. Such a nature might have been more excellent, but to expostulate with God as if he had been bound to confer this nature on man is more than unjust, saying he had full right to determine how much or how little he would give. Why he did not sustain him by the virtue of perseverance is hidden in his counsel. It is ours to keep within the bounds of soberness. Man had received the power, if he had the will, but he had not the will which would have given the power, for this will would have been followed by perseverance. Still, after he had received so much, there is no excuse for his having spontaneously brought death upon himself. No necessity was laid upon God to give him more than that intermediate and even transient will that out of man's fall he might extract materials for his own glory. Chapter 16 The world created by God, still cherished and protected by him, each and all of its parts governed by his providence. There are nine sections. Section 1 It were cold and lifeless to represent God as a momentary creator, who completed his work once for all, and then left it. Here especially we must dissent from the profane, and maintain that the presence of the divine power is conspicuous, not less in the perpetual condition of the world, than in its first creation. For although even wicked men are forced, by the mere view of the earth and sky, to rise to the Creator, yet faith has a method of its own in assigning the whole praise of creation to God. To this effect is the passage of the Apostle, already quoted, that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, Hebrews 11.3, because without proceeding to his providence we cannot understand the full force of what is meant by God being the Creator, how much soever we may seem to comprehend it with our mind and confess it with our tongue. The carnal mind, when once it has perceived the power of God and the creation, stops there, and, at the farthest, thinks and ponders on nothing else than the wisdom, power, and goodness displayed by the author of such a work, matters which rise spontaneously and force themselves on the notice even of the unwilling, or on some general agency on which the power of motion depends, exercised in preserving and governing it. In short, it imagines that all things are sufficiently sustained by the energy divinely infused into them at first. But faith must penetrate deeper. After learning that there is a creator, it must forthwith infer that he is also a governor and preserver, and that, not by producing a kind of general motion in the machine of the globe as well as in each of its parts, but by a special providence sustaining, cherishing, superintending all the things which he has made to the very minutest even to a sparrow. 
Thus David, after briefly premising that the world was created by God, immediately descends to the continual course of providence. Quote, by the word of the Lord were the heavens framed, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Unquote. Immediately adding, quote, The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth the children of men. Unquote. Psalms 33, 6, 13, etc. He subjoins other things to the same effect. For although all do not reason so accurately, yet because it would not be credible that human affairs were superintended by God unless he were the maker of the world, and no one could seriously believe that he is its creator without feeling convinced that he takes care of his works. David, with good reason and in admirable order, leads us from the one to the other. In general, indeed, philosophers teach and the human mind conceives that all the parts of the world are invigorated by the secret inspiration of God. They do not, however, reach the height to which David rises, taking all the pious along with him, when he says, quote, These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them they gather, thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good, thou hidest thy faith, they are troubled, Thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. Unquote. Psalm 104, 27-30 Nay, though they subscribe to the sentiment of Paul that in God, quote, we live and move and have our being, unquote, Acts 17.28 Yet they are far from having a serious apprehension of the grace which he commends, because they have not the least relish for that special care in which alone the paternal favor of God is discerned. Section 2 That this distinction may be more manifest, we must consider that the providence of God, as taught in Scripture, is opposed to fortune and fortuitous causes. By an erroneous opinion prevailing in all ages, an opinion almost universally prevailing in our own day, viz., that all things happen fortuitously, the true doctrine of providence has not only been obscured, but almost buried. If one falls among robbers or ravenous beasts, if a sudden gust of wind at sea causes shipwreck, if one is struck down by the fall of a house or a tree, if another, when wandering through desert paths, meets with deliverance, or, after being tossed by the waves, arrives in port and makes some wondrous hairbreadth escape from death. All these occurrences, prosperous as well as adverse, carnal sense will attribute to fortune. But whoso has learned from the mouth of Christ that all the hairs of his head are numbered, Matthew 10.30, will look farther for the cause and hold that all events whatsoever are governed by the secret counsel of God. With regard to inanimate objects again, we must hold that though each is possessed of its peculiar properties, yet all of them exert a force only in so far as directed by the immediate hand of God. Hence they are merely instruments, into which God constantly infuses what energy he sees meet, and turns and converts to any purpose at his pleasure. No created object makes a more wonderful or glorious display than the sun. For, besides illuminating the whole world with its brightness, how admirably does it foster and invigorate all animals by its heat, and fertilize the earth by its rays, warming the seeds of grain in its lap, and thereby calling forth the verdant blade. This it supports, increases, and strengthens with additional nurture, till it rises into the stalk, and still feeds it with perpetual moisture, till it comes into flower, 
and from flower to fruit, which it continues to ripen till it attains maturity. In like manner, by its warmth, trees and vines bud, and put forth first their leaves, then their blossom, then their fruit. And the Lord, that he might claim the entire glory of these things as his own, was pleased that light should exist, and that the earth should be replenished with all kinds of herbs and fruits before he made the sun. No pious man, therefore, will make the sun either the necessary or principal cause of those things which existed before the creation of the sun, but only the instrument which God employs, because he so pleases, though he can lay it aside and act equally well by himself. Again, when we read that at the prayer of Joshua the sun was stayed in its course, Joshua 10.13, that as a favor to Hezekiah its shadow receded ten degrees, Second Kings 20.11. By these miracles God declared that the sun does not daily rise and set by a blind instinct of nature, but is governed by him in its course, that he may renew the remembrance of his paternal favor toward us. Nothing is more natural than for spring, in its turn, to succeed winter, summer-spring, and autumn-summer. But in this series the variations are so great and so unequal as to make it very apparent that every single year, month, and day is regulated by a new and special providence of God. Section 3. And truly God claims omnipotence to himself, and would have us to acknowledge it, not the vain, indolent, slumbering omnipotence which sophists feign, but vigilant, efficacious, energetic, and ever active, not an omnipotence which may only act as a general principle of confused motion, as in ordering a stream to keep within the channel once prescribed to it, but one which is intent on individual and special movements. God is deemed omnipotent, not because he can act, though he may cease, or be idle, or because by a general instinct he continues the order of nature previously appointed, but because, governing heaven and earth by his providence, he so overrules all things that nothing happens without his counsel. For when it is said in the Psalms, quote, He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased, unquote, Psalm. 115.3. The thing meant is his sure and deliberate purpose. It were insipid to interpret the psalmist's words in philosophic fashion to mean that God is the primary agent, because the beginning and cause of all motion. This, rather, is the solace of the faithful in their adversity, that everything which they endure is by the ordination and command of God, that they are under his hand. But if the government of God thus extends to all his works, it is a childish cavil to confine it to natural influx. Those, moreover, who confine the providence of God within narrow limits, as if he allowed all things to be borne along freely according to a perpetual law of nature, do not more defraud God of his glory than themselves of a most useful doctrine. For nothing were more wretched than man if he were exposed to all possible movements of the sky, the air, the earth, and the water. We may add, that by this view the singular goodness of God towards each individual is unbecomingly impaired. David exclaims, Psalm 8, 3, that infants hanging at their mother's breasts are eloquent enough to celebrate the glory of God because, from the very moment of their birth, they find an element prepared for them by heavenly care. Indeed, if we do not shut our eyes and senses to the fact, we must see that some mothers have full provision for their infants, and others almost none, according as it is the pleasure of God to nourish one child more liberally and another more sparingly. 
Those who attribute due praise to the omnipotence of God thereby derive a double benefit. He to whom heaven and earth belong, and whose nod all creatures must obey, is fully able to reward the homage which they pay to him, and they can rest secure under protection of him to whose control everything that could do them harm is subject, by whose authority Satan, with all his furies and engines, is curbed as with a bridle, and on whose will everything adverse to our safety depends. In this way, and in no other, can the immoderate and superstitious fears excited by the dangers to which we are exposed be calmed or subdued, I say superstitious fears, for such they are. As often as the dangers threatened by any created objects inspire us with such terror, that we tremble as if they had in themselves a power to hurt us, or could hurt at random or by chance, or as if we had not in God a sufficient protection against them. For example, Jeremiah forbids the children of God, quote, to be dismayed at the signs of heaven, as the heathen are dismayed at them, unquote, Jeremiah 10.2. He does not, indeed, condemn every kind of fear, but as unbelievers transfer the government of the world from God to the stars, imagining that happiness or misery depends on their decrees or presages, and not on the divine will, the consequence is that their fear, which ought to have reference to him only, is diverted to stars and comets. Let him, therefore, who would beware of such unbelief, always bear in mind that there is no random power, or agency, or motion in the creatures, who are so governed by the secret counsel of God, that nothing happens but what he has knowingly and willingly decreed. Section 4. First, then, let the reader remember that the providence we mean is not one by which the deity, sitting idly in heaven, looks on at what is taking place in the world, but one by which he, as it were, holds the helm and overrules all events. Hence, his providence extends not less to the hand than to the eye. When Abraham said to his son, God will provide, Genesis 22.8, he meant not merely to assert that the future event was foreknown to God, but to resign the management of an unknown business to the will of him whose province it is to bring perplexed and dubious matters to a happy result. Hence it appears that providence consists in action. What many talk of bare prescience is the merest trifling. Those do not err quite so grossly to attribute government to God, but still, as I have observed, a confused and promiscuous government which consists in giving an impulse and general movement to the machine of the globe and each of its parts, but does not specially direct the action of every creature. It is impossible, however, to tolerate this error. For, according to its abettors, there is nothing in this providence, which they call universe, to prevent all the creatures from being moved contingently, or to prevent man from turning himself in this direction or in that, according to the mere freedom of his own will. In this way, they make man a partner with God, God, by his energy, impressing man with a movement by which he can act, agreeably to the nature conferred upon him, while man voluntarily regulates his own actions. In short, their doctrine is that the world, the affairs of men, and men themselves, are governed by the power, but not by the decree of God. I say nothing of the Epicureans, a pest with which the world has always been plagued, who dream of an inert and idle God, and others, not a whit sounder, who of old feign that God rules the upper regions of the air, but leaves the inferior to fortune. Against such evident madness even dumb creatures lift their voice. My intention now is to refute an opinion which has very generally obtained, 
an opinion which, while it concedes to God some blind and equivocal movement, withholds what is of principal moment, viz., the disposing and directing of everything to its proper end by incomprehensible wisdom. By withholding government, it makes God the ruler of the world in name only, not in reality. For what, I ask, is meant by government, if it be not to preside so as to regulate the destiny of that over which you preside? I do not, however, totally repudiate what is said of an universal providence, provided, on the other hand, it is conceded to me that the world is governed by God, not only because he maintains the order of nature appointed by him, but because he takes a special charge of every one of his works. It is true, indeed, that each species of created objects is moved by a secret instinct of nature, as if they obeyed the eternal command of God, and spontaneously followed the course which God had first appointed. And to this we may refer our Savior's words, that he and his Father have always been at work from the beginning. John 5.17 Also the words of Paul, that, quote, In him we live and move and have our being. Unquote. Acts 17.28 also the words of the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, who, when wishing to prove the divinity of Christ, says that he upholdeth, quote, all things by the word of his power, unquote, Hebrews 1.3. But some, under pretext of the general, hide and obscure the special providence, which is so surely and clearly taught in Scripture, that it is strange how anyone can bring himself to doubt of it. And indeed, those who interpose that disguise are themselves forced to modify their doctrine by adding that many things are done by the special care of God. This, however, they erroneously confine to particular acts. The thing to be proved, therefore, is that single events are so regulated by God, and all events so proceed from His determinate counsel, that nothing happens fortuitously. Section 5. Assuming that the beginning of motion belongs to God but that all things move spontaneously or casually, according to the impulse which nature gives, the vicissitudes of day and night, summer and winter, will be the work of God, inasmuch as He, in assigning the office of each, appointed a certain law, namely, that they should always with uniform tenor observe the same course, day succeeding night, month succeeding month, and year succeeding year. But as at one time excessive heat, combined with drought, burns up the fields, at another time excessive rains rot the crops, while sudden devastation is produced by tempests and storms of hail. These will not be the works of God, unless in so far as rainy or fair weather, heat or cold, are produced by the concourse of the stars and other natural causes. According to this view, there is no place left either for the paternal favor or the judgments of God. If it is said that God fully manifests his beneficence to the human race by furnishing heaven and earth with the ordinary power of producing food, the explanation is meager and heathenish, as if the fertility of one year were not a special blessing, the penury and dearth of another a special punishment and curse from God. But as it would occupy too much time to enumerate all the arguments, let the authority of God himself suffice. In the Law and the Prophets, he repeatedly declares that as often as he waters the earth with dew and rain, he manifests his favor, that by his command the heaven becomes hard as iron, the crops are destroyed by mildew and other evils, that storms and hail and devastating the fields are signs of sure and special vengeance. This being admitted, 
It is certain that not a drop of rain falls without the express command of God. David, indeed, Psalm 146.9, extols the general providence of God in supplying food to the young ravens that cry to him. But when God himself threatens living creatures with famine, does he not plainly declare that they are all nourished by him, at one time with scanty, at another with more ample measure? It is childish, as I have already said, to confine this to particular acts, when Christ says without reservation that not a sparrow falls to the ground without the will of his Father. Matthew 10:29. Surely, if the flight of birds is regulated by the counsel of God, we must acknowledge with the prophet that while he, quote, dwelleth on high, unquote, he, quote, humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth, unquote. Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6. Section 6. But as we know that it was chiefly for the sake of mankind that the world was made, we must look to this as the end which God has in view in the government of it. The prophet Jeremiah exclaims, quote, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Unquote. Jeremiah 10:23. Solomon again says, quote, Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Unquote. Proverbs 20:24. 20, Will it now be said that man is moved by God according to the bent of his nature, but that man himself gives the movement any direction he pleases? Were it truly so, man would have the full disposal of his own ways. To this it will perhaps be answered, that man can do nothing without the power of God. But the answer will not avail, since both Jeremiah and Solomon attribute to God not power only, but also election and decree. And Solomon, in another place, elegantly rebukes the rashness of men in fixing their plans without reference to God, as if they were not led by his hand. Quote, the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Unquote. Proverbs 16.1 It is a strange infatuation, surely, for miserable men who cannot even give utterance except in so far as God pleases to begin to act without him. Scripture, moreover, the better to show that everything done in the world is according to his decree, declares that the things which seem most fortuitous are subject to him. For what seems more attributable to chance than the branch which falls from a tree and kills the passing traveler? But the Lord sees very differently and declares that he delivered him into the hand of the slayer. Exodus 21:13. In like manner, who does not attribute the lot to the blindness of fortune? Not so the Lord who claims the decision for himself. Proverbs 16:33. He says not that by his power the lot is thrown into the lap and taken out, but declares that the only thing which could be attributed to chance is from him. To the same effect are the words of Solomon, quote, The poor and the deceitful man meet together. The Lord lighteneth both their eyes, unquote. Proverbs 29:13. For although rich and poor are mingled together in the world, in saying that the condition of each is divinely appointed, he reminds us that God, who enlightens all, has his own eye always open, and thus exhorts the poor to patient endurance, seeing that those who are discontented with their lot endeavor to shake off a burden which God has imposed upon them. Thus, too, another prophet upbraids the profane, who ascribed it to human industry, or to fortune, that some grovel in the mire, while others rise to honor. Quote, Promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, 
nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one, and setteth up another. Unquote. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. Because God cannot divest himself of the office of judge, he infers that to his secret counsel it is owing that some are elevated, while others remain without honor. Section 7. Nay, I affirm in general that particular events are evidences of the special providence of God. In the wilderness, God caused a south wind to blow, and brought the people a plentiful supply of birds. Exodus 19.13 When he desired that Jonah should be thrown into the sea, he sent forth a whirlwind. Those who deny that God holds the reins of government will say that this was contrary to ordinary practice, whereas I infer from it that no wind ever rises or rages without his special command. In no way could it be true that, quote, he maketh the winds his messengers, and the flames of fire his ministers, unquote, that, quote, he maketh the clouds his chariot, and walketh upon the wings of the wind, unquote. Psalm 104, verses 3 and 4. Did he not at pleasure drive the clouds and winds, and therein manifest the special presence of his power? In like manner we are elsewhere taught, that whenever the sea is raised into a storm, its billows attest the special presence of God. Quote, he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves. Unquote. Quote, he maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Unquote. Psalm 107, verses 25 and 29. He also elsewhere declares that he had smitten the people with blasting and mildew. Amos 4, 9. Again, while man naturally possesses the power of continuing his species, God describes it as a mark of his special favor, that while some continue childless, others are blessed with offspring, for the fruit of the womb is his gift. Hence the words of Jacob to Rachel, quote, Am I in God's deed, who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? Unquote. Genesis 32. To conclude in one word, nothing in nature is more ordinary than that we should be nourished with bread. But the Spirit declares not only that the produce of the earth is God's special gift, but, quote, that man doth not live by bread alone, unquote. Deuteronomy 8.3 Because it is not mere fullness that nourishes him, but the secret blessing of God. And hence, on the other hand, he threatens to take away, quote, the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, unquote. Isaiah 3.1 Indeed, there could be no serious meaning in our prayer for daily bread if God did not with paternal hand supply us with food. Accordingly, to convince the faithful that God, in feeding them, fulfills the office of the best of parents, the prophet reminds them that he, quote, giveth food to all flesh, unquote. Psalm 136, 25. And fine, when we hear on the one hand that, quote, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry, unquote, and on the other hand that, quote, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth, unquote. Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16. Let us be assured that all creatures above and below are ready at his service, that he may employ them in whatever way he pleases. Hence we infer not only that the general providence of God, continuing the order of nature, extends over the creatures, but that by his wonderful counsel they are adapted to a certain and special purpose. Section 8. Those who would cast obloquy on this doctrine calumniate at it as the dogma of the Stoics concerning fate. 
The same charge was formerly brought against Augustine. We are unwilling to dispute about words, but we do not admit the term fate, both because it is of the class which Paul teaches us to shun as profane novelties, 1 Timothy 6.20, and also because it is attempted, by means of an odious term, to fix a stigma on the truth of God. But the dogma itself is falsely and maliciously imputed to us. For we do not with the Stoics imagine a necessity consisting of a perpetual chain of causes and a kind of involved series contained in nature. But we hold that God is the disposer and ruler of all things, that from the remotest eternity, according to his own wisdom, he decreed what he was to do, and now by his power executes what he decreed. Hence, we maintain that by his providence, not heaven and earth and inanimate creatures only, but also the counsels and wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which he has destined. What then, you will say, does nothing happen fortuitously, nothing contingently? I answer, it was a true saying of Basil the Great, that fortune and chance are heathen terms, the meaning of which ought not to occupy pious minds. For if all success is blessing from God, and calamity and adversity are his curse, there is no place left in human affairs for fortune and chance. We ought also to be moved by the words of Augustine, quote, In my writings against the academics, he says, I regret having so often used the term fortune, although I intended to denote by it not some goddess, but the fortuitous issue of events in external matters, whether good or evil. Hence, too, those words, perhaps, perchance, fortuitously, which no religion forbids us to use, though everything must be referred to divine providence. Nor did I omit to observe this when I said, although, perhaps, that which is vulgarly called fortune is also regulated by a hidden order. And what we call chance is nothing else than that the reason and cause of which is secret. It is true, I so spoke, but I repent of having mentioned fortune there as I did. When I see the very bad custom which men have of saying, not as they ought to do, quote, so God pleased, unquote, but, quote, so fortune pleased, unquote, unquote. In short, Augustine everywhere teaches that if anything is left to fortune, the world moves at random. And although he elsewhere declares that all things are carried on partly by the free will of man and partly by the providence of God, he shortly after shows clearly enough that his meaning was that men also are ruled by providence, when he assumes it as a principle that there cannot be a greater absurdity than to hold that anything is done without the ordination of God, because it would happen at random. For which reason he also excludes the contingency which depends on human will, maintaining a little further on in clear terms that no cause must be sought for but the will of God. When he uses the term permission, the meaning which he attaches to it will best appear from a single passage where he proves that the will of God is the supreme and primary cause of all things because nothing happens without his order or permission. He certainly does not figure God sitting idly in a watchtower when he chooses to permit anything. The will which he represents as interposing is, if I may so express it, active and, but for this, could not be regarded as a cause. Section 9 But since our sluggish minds rest far beneath the height of divine providence, we must have recourse to a distinction which may assist them in rising. 
I say then, that though all things are ordered by the counsel and certain arrangement of God, to us, however, they are fortuitous, not because we imagine that fortune rules the world and mankind, and turns all things upside down at random, for be such a heartless thought from every Christian breast. But as the order, method, end, and necessity of events are for the most part hidden in the counsel of God, though it is certain that they are produced by the will of God, they have the appearance of being fortuitous, such being the form under which they present themselves to us, whether considered in their own nature, or estimated according to our knowledge and judgment. Let us suppose, for example, that a merchant, after entering a forest in company with trustworthy individuals, imprudently strays from his companions, and wanders bewildered till he falls into a den of robbers and is murdered. His death is not only foreseen by the eye of God, but had been fixed by his decree. For it is said, not that he foresaw how far the life of each individual should extend, but that he determined and fixed the bounds, which could not be passed. Job 14.5 Still, in relation to our capacity of discernment, all these things appear fortuitous. How will the Christian feel? Though he will consider that every circumstance which occurred in that person's death was indeed in its nature fortuitous, he will have no doubt that the providence of God overruled it and guided fortune to his own end. The same thing holds in the case of future contingencies. All future events, being uncertain to us, seem in suspense, as if ready to take either direction. Still, however, the impression remains seated in our hearts that nothing will happen which the Lord has not provided. In this sense, the term event is repeatedly used in Ecclesiastes, because at the first glance men do not penetrate to the primary cause which lies concealed. And yet, what is taught in Scripture of the secret providence of God was never so completely effaced from the human heart as that some sparks did not always shine in the darkness. Thus the soothsayers of the Philistines, though they waver in uncertainty, attribute the adverse event partly to God and partly to chance. If the ark, say they, quote, goeth up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh, then he hath done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us, it was a chance that happened to us, unquote. 1 Samuel 11.9 Foolishly, indeed, when divination fails them, they flee to fortune. Still we see them constrained, so as not to venture to regard their disaster as fortuitous. But the mode in which God, by the curb of his providence, turns events in whatever direction he pleases, will appear from a remarkable example. At the very same moment when David was discovered in the wilderness of Maon, the Philistines make an inroad into the country and Saul is forced to depart. 1 Samuel 23, verses 26 and 27. If God, in order to provide for the safety of his servant, threw this obstacle in the way of Saul, we surely cannot say that though the Philistines took up arms contrary to human expectation, they did it by chance. What seems to us contingent, faith will recognize as the secret impulse of God. The reason is not always equally apparent, but we ought undoubtedly to hold that all the changes which take place in the world are produced by the secret agency of the hand of God. At the same time, that which God has determined, though it must come to pass, is not, however, precisely or in its own nature necessary. We have a familiar example in the case of our Savior's bones. As he assumed a body similar to ours, no sane man will deny that his bones were capable of being broken, and yet it was impossible that they should be broken. 
John 19 verses 33 and 36. Hence again we see that there was good ground for the distinction which the schoolmen made between necessity, secundum quid, and necessity absolute, also between the necessity of consequent and of consequence. God made the bones of his son frangible, though he exempted them from actual fracture, and thus, in reference to the necessity of his counsel, made that impossible which might have naturally taken place. Chapter 17 used to be made of the doctrine of providence. There are fourteen sections. Section 1. Moreover, such is the proneness of the human mind to indulge in vain subtleties, that it becomes almost impossible for those who do not see the sound and proper use of this doctrine to avoid entangling themselves in perplexing difficulties. It will, therefore, be proper here to advert to the end which Scripture has in view in teaching that all things are divinely ordained and it is to be observed first that the providence of God is to be considered with reference both to the past and the future, and secondly, that in overruling all things, it works at one time with means, at another without means, and at another against means. Lastly, the design of God is to show that he takes care of the whole human race, but is especially vigilant in governing the church, which he favors with a closer inspection. Moreover, we must add that although the paternal favor and beneficence as well as the judicial severity of God is often conspicuous in the whole course of his providence, yet occasionally, as the causes of events are concealed, the thought is apt to rise that human affairs are whirled about by the blind impulse of fortune, or our carnal nature inclines us to speak as if God were amusing himself by tossing men up and down like balls. It is true, indeed, that if with sedate and quiet minds we were disposed to learn, the issue would at length make it manifest that the counsel of God was in accordance with the highest reason, that his purpose was either to train his people to patience, correct their depraved affections, tame their wantonness, inure them to self-denial, and arouse them from torpor, or, on the other hand, to cast down the proud, defeat the craftiness of the ungodly, and frustrate all their schemes. How much soever causes may escape our notice, we must feel assured that they are deposited with him, and accordingly exclaim with David, quote, Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Unquote. Psalm 45 For while our adversities ought always to remind us of our sins, that the punishment may incline us to repentance, we see, moreover, how Christ declares there is something more in the secret counsel of his Father than to chastise everyone as he deserves. For he says of the man who was born blind, quote, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Unquote. John 9.3 Here, where calamity takes precedence even of birth, our carnal sense murmurs as if God were unmerciful in thus afflicting those who have not offended. But Christ declares that, provided we had eyes clear enough, we should perceive that in this spectacle the glory of his Father is brightly displayed. We must use modesty, not as it were compelling God to render an account, but so revering his hidden judgments as to account his will the best of all reasons. When the sky is overcast with dense clouds, and a violent tempest arises, the darkness which is presented to our eye, and the thunder which strikes our ears, and stupefies all our senses with terror, make us imagine that everything is thrown into confusion, 
though in the firmament itself all continues quiet and serene. In the same way, when the tumultuous aspect of human affairs unfits us for judging, we should still hold that God, in the pure light of his justice and wisdom, keeps all these commotions in due subordination, and conducts them to their proper end. And certainly in this matter many display monstrous infatuation, presuming to subject the works of God to their calculation, and discuss his secret counsels, as well as to pass a precipitate judgment on things unknown, and that with greater license than on the doings of mortal men. What can be more preposterous than to show modesty toward our equals, and choose rather to suspend our judgment than incur the blame of rashness? while we petulantly insult the hidden judgments of God, judgments which it becomes us to look up to and to revere. Section 2 No man therefore will duly and usefully ponder on the providence of God, save he who recollects that he has to do with his own Maker, and the Maker of the world, and in the exercise of humility which becomes him, manifests both fear and reverence. Hence it is that in the present day so many dogs tear this doctrine with envenomed teeth, are, at least, to sail it with their bark, refusing to give more license to God than their own reason dictates to themselves. With what petulance, too, are we assailed for not being contented with the precepts of the law, in which the will of God is comprehended, and for maintaining that the world is governed by his secret counsels? As if our doctrine were the figment of our own brain, and were not distinctly declared by the Spirit, and repeated in innumerable forms of expression since some feeling of shame restrains them from daring to belch forth their blasphemies against heaven, that they may give the freer vent to their rage, they pretend to pick a quarrel with us. But if they refuse to admit that every event which happens in the world is governed by the incomprehensible counsel of God, let them explain to what effect Scripture declares that, quote, His judgments are a great deep, unquote. Psalm 36, 7. For when Moses exclaims that the will of God, quote, is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven, and bring it unto us? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea, and bring it unto us? Unquote. Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 and 13. Because it was familiarly expounded in the law, it follows that there must be another hidden will, which is compared to, quote, a great deep, unquote. It is of this will Paul exclaims, quote, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Unquote. Romans 11, verses 33 and 34. It is true indeed that in the law and the gospel are comprehended mysteries which far transcend the measure of our sense. But since God, to enable his people to understand those mysteries which he has designed to reveal in his word, enlightens their minds with the spirit of understanding, they are now no longer a deep, but a path in which they can walk safely, a lamp to guide their feet, a light of life, a school of clear and certain truth. But the admirable method of governing the world is justly called a deep, because while it lies hid from us, it is to be reverently adored. Both views Moses has beautifully expressed in a few words, quote, Secret things, saith he, belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, unquote. Deuteronomy 29.29 we see how he enjoins us not only studiously to meditate on the law, but to look up with reverence to the secret providence of God. The book of Job also, in order to keep our minds humble, contains a description of this lofty theme. 
the author of the book, after taking an ample survey of the universe and discoursing magnificently on the works of God at length, adds, quote, Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him, unquote. Job 26.14 For which reason he, in another passage, distinguishes between the wisdom which dwells in God and the measure of wisdom which he has assigned to man. Job 28, verses 21 and 28. After discoursing of the secrets of nature, he says that wisdom, quote, is hid from the eyes of all living, unquote, that, quote, God understandeth the way thereof, unquote. Shortly after, he adds, that it has been divulged that it might be investigated, for, quote, unto man, he said, behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, unquote. To this the words of Augustine refer, quote, as we do not know all the things which God does respecting us in the best order, we ought, with good intention, to act according to the law, and in some things be acted upon according to the law, his providence being a law immutable. Unquote. Therefore, since God claims to himself the right of governing the world, a right unknown to us, let it be our law of modesty and soberness to acquiesce in his supreme authority, regarding his will as our only rule of justice and the most perfect cause of all things, not that absolute will indeed of which sophists prate, when by profane and impious divorce they separate his justice from his power, but that universal overruling providence from which nothing flows that is not right, though the reasons thereof may be concealed. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. 
Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.